please turn with me to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 10. Uh, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 to 10. Follow with me. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Here ends the reading. If you've got Bibles with you, please do keep them open on that passage as we look at the passage together and see what God is saying to us through the passage. Um, God is not speaking through me because of my words, but God speaks to us. The Bible tells us God speaks to us in his revealed word the Bible, as we come to it, as we seek to understand it. Um, So let's come and let's ask God to do that. Let's pray and ask him to speak to us as we come to hear from him in his word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a speaking God. Thank you that you've made yourself known, that you've revealed yourself uh, through uh, the prophets, through the apostles, in the pages of scripture. Father, we pray that as we look at this passage today together, we pray that you'll speak to us. We pray that you'll grow us in our understanding of you and your work in this world. We pray that you will strengthen us to live lives worthy of the calling to which you have called us. We pray that you'll use our time together, that you'll use us for your honor and glory. Amen. Uh, We're starting a new series this week. Um, uh, looking at this letter to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, it's a, it's a letter written to a very new church, a very young church. It's written by uh, Paul, um, Paul uh, actually by three people, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Um, and they had a, Paul had a, a, a very close, special relationship with this church. Um, we read about Paul's 
uh, initial encounter with this church in Acts chapter 17. Paul and Silas were on a missionary journey traveling around from town to town, and they came across this town of Thessalonica. Now, they were in this town for a very short period of time. Just listen, um, listen to how things went when they were there. So um, I'm reading from Acts 17, verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I proclaim to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So, uh, spending a short time there, um, initially things look like it's going really well. Uh, Three consecutive Sabbaths, Paul's teaching them about Jesus being the Messiah, the promised king of the Old Testament. He teaches them that Jesus had to come and suffer and die. So, off to a good start, but it wasn't all smooth sailing. The very next verse in Acts 17 shows us that some of the Jews were jealous of what was going on. So, they're jealous of these people being converted from Judaism to follow this man called Jesus. And they attacked some of the believers. So, Paul gets sent out of Thessalonica after a very short time, and he goes on to Berea. And it's a month later that Paul has the opportunity to send Timothy back to them and to hear how things are going. But Paul would have been with them for a very short time. Some, some argue that it's only three weeks as he talks about the three consecutive Sabbaths. Others say, well, it might have been a few months. There's probably evidence that it's a few months, but no more than five months. So as he leaves, as he has to flee this town, this young church, this new church, very small church, very young church, a bunch of uh, young baby Christians, immature Christians are left. You can imagine how Paul would have felt as he had to leave. So he goes on to Berea, spending nights in Berea, thinking, how are these young Thessalonian Christians doing? Are they still believing? Are they sticking with the faith? Uh, In chapter 3 of uh, 1 Thessalonians, verse 5, Paul says, I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our labors might have been in vain. Real distress, anguish about how they are doing as young Christians. And as I said, after some time, Paul has the opportunity to send Timothy, uh, his right-hand man, uh, back to them. And then Timothy comes back to Paul and he gives this great report of saying, These guys are going well in their faith. Things are going well in Thessalonica. Against all odds, the church is thriving. The Christians are still believing. Listen to Paul's Paul's response to that in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. So Paul's had this great report to say that things are going well. And, and he's ecstatic, he's delighted to hear that this young church, immature Christians, have been growing in their faith. They're standing firm in their relationship with God. And now Paul, with Silas and Timothy, 
writes this letter back to them to encourage them, to spur them on in their relationship with God. His letter starts off with this passage where he's overflowing with thankfulness to God for them. And he gives thanks to God for them because he sees evidence that they are genuine believers. He sees evidence of a genuine conversion that they are authentic Christians. Now, knowing something, whether something is the genuine article or whether it's a fake, is incredibly important. You could spend a lot of money investing in something thinking it's genuine, only to find out it is fake. Does anyone here know the name John Myatt? No, no one. Okay, that doesn't surprise me because uh, until recently, I didn't know the name. Um, John Myatt is a British artist, and he is known as the one who was behind the biggest fraud of the 20th century. Um, I went and did some research about art frauds this last week, and John Myatt started out um, selling legitimate copies of famous artworks. He called them genuine fakes. So he started out as quite an honest guy, um, making uh, copies of someone else's work, but everyone, everyone knew it was. But then somehow he slipped into uh, selling these genuine fakes as if they're the real things. And he made and sold over 200 forgeries, at least those are the ones they've been able to track down. Um, art auctions, like the, the big names of Phillips and uh, Sotheby's. Now, if you're an art um, uh, collector, you'll know those. Uh, I'm pretty sure none of us here are. But maybe you've heard those names. But they, they are some of the big auction houses for high-valued artworks. And, and they sold many of his works thinking that they were genuine. He was only found out when his ex-business partner's ex-girlfriend got cross with the business partner and ratted them out to the police. And it was only then that they discovered how big this forgery was. Uh, one of the other articles I read said that they, they estimate about 20% of all artwork in museums are forgeries. Sorry if you're an art lover and I just blew your mind. The passage that we're dealing with now is dealing with the question of how do we know what are genuine Christians? How do we spot a genuine work of God compared to a fake? Paul tells them that he thanks God for them. And he's thanking God for them. And he's, he's telling uh, them that he's thanking God for them. But not only that, he tells them why he is thanking God for them. Uh, have a look in verse 4. Paul says, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul is thanking God for them because he is convinced that they are the real deal, that they are genuine believers, genuine, authentic followers of Jesus. Now, there's many reasons why they might have doubted whether they were the real deal. They faced much opposition since hearing about Jesus. They didn't have a long-established church with leaders who had years of experience. 
their only leaders had to flee because of the opposition that they faced. Paul and Silas were chased out of town. What's more, uh, seeing the message of the gospel rejected by those around them, Jews, uh, jealous, um, they were the ones that should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. But they reject the message and oppose it. So you can see why the Christians in Thessalonica might be thinking, are they the real deal? Are they true believers? Or is there something else? Now, as Paul writes them, he wants to convince them and reassure them that they are the real deal. Um, Throughout the rest of this passage, we see evidence that Paul puts forward to them as to why he is convinced that they are genuine believers. The first evidence we pick up in verses 2 and 3. Have a look at verse 2 and 3. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God the Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus. Here Paul puts forward this trio of faith, love, and hope. These are three themes that actually run through the whole of the letter. And we're going to see the, the, the themes developed. But what he's showing here is hallmarks of what it means to be an authentic Christian. Faith, love, and hope. And we see this not only in this letter, but we see it throughout the rest of the New Testament. The genuine Christian will have faith in the Lord Jesus. The genuine Christian will be loving God and his people. The genuine Christian will have hope beyond this world. Faith, faith that is shown by work. Did you notice there he says, um, we remember before the Lord before God and Father, your work produced by faith. Faith is shown by work. Faith is believing in Jesus, believing that he is the one and only rightful ruler of this world, believing that he came into this world to die, that we can be forgiven, Uh, believing that we can have eternal life because of this gift from God to us. But faith doesn't merely stop at believing. Faith transforms, it works in us. It shows itself out in work. Faith leads to doing things, to serving God, to serving his people. Faith works itself out in transforming the way we live and what we live for. The second hallmark is is love. And love is shown in labor. Did you notice there? Uh, Verse 3 again. Your labor prompted by love. That is love for one another. Love is not just the Hollywood, it's a feeling in your stomach, those butterflies. Uh, Love in the Bible is an action. It's a decision. The labor of love is selflessly doing something for someone else. Uh, giving up your own uh, comfort and position to love one another. Hallmark of Christians is the, the labor produced by love. And then third hallmark there is the hope that is shown in endurance. 
It is the endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Endurance is keeping going, keeping going to the end, no matter what the world throws at you. Whether life is easy, whether it's hard, whether we face persecution uh, or not, the Christian keeps going, keeps enduring, keeps remaining steadfast, setting their eyes on that future return of the Lord Jesus. Uh, over a number of years in ministry, I've had, yes, you can call it a privilege of seeing some people as they come towards the end of their life, living out this hope, a longing, and not scared of death, but longing for what is coming afterwards. That is the hope that we can have as Christians. True Christian hope, true uh, guaranteed hope is knowing that there is life beyond death because of what Jesus has done for us. The second set of evidence that uh, Paul gives that he is convinced that they are genuine comes in verses 5 and 6. Have a look at verse 5 and 6. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with great joy given by the Holy Spirit. When they heard the message of the gospel, when they heard the good news of Jesus that Paul and Silas proclaimed to them, they received it, and they received it with joy. Uh, they're receiving it isn't just like you're going to receive teaching from your lecturers in the weeks and months ahead. They're receiving it is with deep conviction, with joy, with the power uh, and the Holy Spirit. Now, as Paul talks about them receiving it with power and the Holy Spirit, he's not talking about it coming with amazing signs and wonders, but the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about that deep conviction to bring about the transforming work in them as they hear the message of the gospel. And what's more, did you notice, they accepted the gospel in the midst of much affliction. As we said at the beginning, the Jews were jealous that so many of these people were turning to believe in Jesus. Paul was chased out of town. Uh, the Jews opposed Paul so much that they even chased Paul all the way to the next town to try and get him out of there as well. If we read further in Acts, you'll see that Jason, one of the Christians in Thessalonica, was even arrested and, uh, because uh, of, of the fact that he had uh, hosted Paul in his house. But despite all this opposition, the Christians in Thessalonica believed and accepted this message with deep conviction and with great joy. And by doing that, they imitated Paul and they imitated the Lord Jesus. And none of us want to face suffering or hardship in this world. If you do, maybe you need to come talk to me and we need to spend some time together. But Jesus faced suffering and opposition. Suffering and opposition, Jesus says, is part and parcel of the Christian life. We don't want to face it. 
but it is something that comes as people hate the message and hate the Lord Jesus. So to one degree or another, we will face hardship and suffering in, uh, as followers of Jesus. But the genuine believer will not turn away because of persecution. The genuine believer holds on to that message, receives that word with joy, and perseveres to the end. The third batch of evidence uh, that shows that Paul is convinced that these believers are genuine believers comes in verses 7 to 10. And here we see the authentic Christian transformation that takes place in their lives. In verse 7, these these Thessalonian Christians become a model, an example to all believers. See, their lives were transformed as they believed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Their priorities, their passions were transformed. Their relationships with one another were changed and they became relationships centered around love for one another. In verse 8, the message of the Lord rang out from among them. Not only did they believe the message, uh, but having the Holy Spirit work in them, transforming them, uh, uh, as they experienced this great joy of hearing and being transformed by the gospel message, uh, they go forward and proclaim that message to others. Both the message of the gospel and the message of how their lives had been transformed by the power of the gospel rang out from among them. In verses 9 and 10, Paul comes back to these hallmarks of the authentic Christian life, faith, love, and hope. And he shows shows us how this is working out in the lives of these Thessalonian Christians. First, we see their love as they received Paul and Silas and accepted their message. This is their labor of love. Second, we see their faith as they turn to serve the living God from idols, turning from worshiping idols to serve the one and only true God. Now, for the Thessalonians, the idols would have been uh, some of the pagan temple worship that would have happened there. An idol is anything that takes the worship that only God deserves. My guess is none of us are tempted to go and bow down to shrines or idols. Maybe there is one or two, but that's not part of our culture. But there's many other things that we love, that we worship, that only God should be receiving that worship. They turn from idols to serve the one and only living God. That is the work of faith, serving the living God. Then finally, we say their hope as they are waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. Have a look down in verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus is coming back. The Thessalonians knew that clearly. He is coming back. And when he comes back, he will uh, put an end to all evil. He will remove all the effects of evil from this world. 
He will save us from the wrath that is to come. And he will give eternal life to his followers and take them to be part of his eternal paradise. This is the sure and certain hope that we have if we are believers in Jesus. Now, as we've seen, Paul tells the Thessalonians that he's praying for them. He tells them that he's abundantly thankful to God for them. And he shows them evidence why he is thankful to God. And he does this to reassure them that they are genuine believers. He wants to give them great confidence in the work that God is doing among them, that God has done among them. In this passage, we see some key indicators of what we can look for to see evidence of God's work. It shows us how we can spot um, genuine work of God. Now, God is the only one who can truly judge our hearts. But there's outward evidence that shows of the inner work that God is doing. The hallmarks of the true Christian life. Faith, love, hope, and the transformed life. Do we see that evidence in our lives? Do we see that evidence in the lives of those around us? As you think about these three hallmarks of the true Christian, the work produced by faith, the labor prompted by love, the steadfastness by hope, how do they compare to our lives? Would we say that that's hallmarks of our lives? Faith, love, hope? Do you see faith in your life uh, working out in working in serving God and his purposes? Do you see love working out in, in caring for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have a deep hope that keeps you going steadfastly no matter what this world throws at you? Are you accepting the message of Jesus with joy even if it means you're facing persecution? Paul is saying to these uh, Christians in Thessalonica that he sees evidence that they are genuine believers. Are we? Are we genuine believers? Are we seeing this in our life? Now maybe you, you find it hard to see these hallmarks in your life. Uh, maybe you've grown up uh, going to church, but it's much more been thing that you've just done out of tradition, thing that your parents did. Maybe you've just thought of yourself as a Christian, but as you think about these hallmarks, you, you're asking, well, have I really believed this? Well, let me strongly encourage you to, to examine what Jesus says. Examine if you are believing this for yourself. Come join us on a Thursday. Join us on Sunday as we study God's word, as we get to know him in his word as we see what he is claiming. Now, there might be some of you who, who are wondering, if, you know, is my faith real? Am, am I genuine? There's lots of things that can cause us to doubt, but that shouldn't cause us to doubt. Maybe to some degree we feel like we're missing out. We hear of experiences that other Christians have, and we think, well, we've got to have that experience to make sure that we're the real deal. 
Well, that's, that's not the case. If there is faith, love, hope, that is evidence that you are following the Lord Jesus. Maybe, maybe you're facing hardship or suffering, and you're thinking, well, should I be really facing that if I'm a Christian? Well, remember again, hardship is part of living in a sinful world. Persecution is part and parcel of being a Christian. It does not mean that you are not a Christian. Actually, it might even be evidence that you are genuinely believing. Maybe you're struggling with sin, and you think, wow, I'm sinning so much. How can I be a genuine Christian? What Paul is saying here, it's not about how little you sin, but is there the evidence of faith, love, hope? Is that working out? Is the gospel transformation in your life showing itself out? You know, we're not looking at perfect hope, perfect love, perfect faith. But is there evidence of some hope, some faith, some um, love in your life? Many of you will be looking for a church to settle into in, during your time in Stellenbosch. As you're looking for a church, look for a church that has evidence of a genuine work of God. As look for a group of people that are powerfully being transformed by the work of their gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in them to bring conviction and change. It can be so easy to look for all sorts of other things. To look for a church where things are hip and happening, where the pastor's got tattoos down his arm, been tempted a while just to get, just so I can say I've got. Um, or for, for a, a singing that's a little bit like a rock concert. Now, those are not necessarily bad things, but the key things that we should be looking for is evidence of the powerful work of the Spirit, the transforming work in the lives of people, making them more and more like the, like the Lord Jesus. Are we seeing evidence of faith, of hope, of love among the Christians? And then as we look at one another, as we see God's transforming work in our lives, how are we responding? Uh, are we thinking, oh, great, good for you, nice. Or are we like Paul in verse 2, overflowing with thankfulness at what God is doing? Just listen to those words in verse 2 again. We always thank God for all of you and continue mention you in our prayers. Are we genuinely thankful for the work that God is doing in the lives of one another? It's absolutely amazing what God is doing. That he's taking a bunch of wretched sinners like us. That he's transforming us. That he's working in us by his spirit, by the message of the gospel, to bring about this transformation. We should be overflowing with praise to God for what he has done. We're going to come and partake in the Lord's Supper together. As we do this, we're going to um, remember Jesus' body that was broken for us. That is what has brought us into a relationship with God. That is what has dealt with our problem of our sin. We're going to remember Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross for us. Jesus' blood was shed so that ours doesn't have to. He took the penalty we deserve because of our rebellion against God. 
so that we can be forgiven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are abundantly merciful, far more merciful than we deserve. We do not presume to come to share in the Lord's Supper together, trusting in our own goodness, but only in your great mercy. Heavenly Father, we are not fit uh, for any good thing from you, but you are merciful. You are always the same. You are everlasting. Therefore, Father, we pray that you may grant that we may by faith eat the flesh and drink the blood of your dear Son, that we may be united to him and he to us, that we may remember the forgiveness that he has bought for us on the cross, and that we may look forward to the day when we will be with you in your eternal paradise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, some of the servers are going to come and they will distribute the, the bread and the grape juice. Please do keep it with you and then we will, in an act of unity, eat and drink together. Go. Um, do you remember to take your mask down when you eat? I'm not sure it will taste that great with the mask on. Um, but as we take the bread together, we remember that Jesus' Jesus' body was broken for us. His body was broken so that ours can be spared to eternal life. So the body of the Lord Jesus, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart with thanksgiving. As we take the cup, we remember that Jesus' blood was shed for us, that he gave up his life that we may gain eternal life. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that your mercy is everlasting. We praise you that your mercy is greater than our sin. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he died, that we may be saved. Father, we pray that day by day you will remind us how great a gift you've given us in him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.